This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. This is a crowd podcast. We didn't start the fire. The only podcast started by me, Billy Joel. Birth Control. Ho Chi Minh. Richard Nixon back again. Moonshot. Woodstock. Watergate. Punk Rock. Begin. Reagan. Palestine. Terror on the airline. Ayatollahs in Iran. Russians in Afghanistan. Yet. I'm afraid yes, Katie. Duh. Hello and welcome to episode 109 of We Didn't Start the Fire, the podcast that races through post-war history and all the reasons why the world today is as it is, all done through the medium of a number one smash hit for Billy Joel. I am Tom Fordyce. I'm Katie Puckrick. Katie, as always, we're ready for our minds to be expanded, astonished and quite possibly blown. Russians in Afghanistan. Kind of a mouthful for a lyric for Billy. And it's all about 1979 and onwards for 10 years and beyond. The Soviet Union in 1979 invaded Afghanistan to protect communist interests in the country. Rebels were supported by the United States, of course. And finally, after a long, brutal war, the Soviets were forced to withdraw from the country. Any awareness of this scenario in your young life, Thomas? Well, Katie, as you know, I experienced things when I was younger through two things, sports and music. So this I became aware of as a kid. My first Olympic Games that I remember watching was the 1980 Olympic Games in Moscow, which was a boycott games because the US refused to send a team as a protest against the Russian invasion of Afghanistan. Mm. And the British team was an unofficial British team. So it wasn't the official British Olympic Association. And Margaret Thatcher's government spent a lot of time trying to dissuade the big-name athletes from going. So I remember being very conscious as a probably six-year-old watching these games and thinking, where's half the world? Oh, because that was your UN was watching the Olympics. (laughs) It was. And was this an opportunity for the second and third tier British athletes to have a pop at the medal? So there were uh, some absolute legends who won Olympic gold medals at those Olympics. There were also a few who some people slightly unfairly would say would not have won those Olympic golds had the uh, powerhouse of the United States been there. Hmm. Um, how about you, Katie? Because we're in the part of the song now where we were alive. Yeah, we were alive and hormones, in my case, were racing in 1979. I was in the high school drama club Cared nothing about the fate of the poor Afghans. All I was subsumed by was that I wanted Blair Holmes to think I was fascinating. I played his grandmother in a high school production of Pippin. I think our chemistry could best be described as tepid. (laughs) Still holding out hope for Blair Holmes. Anyway, I'm going nowhere with this, and thank goodness we are extremely honored to have with us a preeminent authority on Afghan history, David Loyne. 
David worked as a foreign correspondent since the late 1970s, reporting on insurgent groups, including interviews with Hamas and Hezbollah leaders in Lebanon, Kashmiri separatists, and the Kosovo Liberation Army. David has conducted several significant exclusive interviews with the Taliban in Afghanistan. He's also the visiting senior fellow in war studies at King's College London. My goodness, that's the end of the show, going through all of your credentials. Welcome, David Lawrence. Thanks, Katie. Thanks, Tom. It's great to be here. Well, I'm wondering, first of all, uh, you seem to be a little bit of a globe trotter. How did you first become interested in Afghanistan? I was the BBC correspondent in India in the mid-90s. I took over from Mark Tully in 1993. And I looked around my parish, as it were, the, the broader South Asia, traveled to Sri Lanka, went and covered an election in, in Pakistan. And at the time, there was a brutal, messy, meaningless civil war going on in Afghanistan. And I went there once, and it was terrifying. We slept in the basement of the house because rock Random rockets were coming in at night and the house might collapse on top of you. We slept in, in the basement in this sort of sheltered area with shovels just in case we had to dig ourselves out. Nobody cared. It was at the time the Forgotten War. That's what it was kind of known as in, in newsrooms. No editors wanted to put it on because it was arcane, difficult to understand. Um, and this was following that Russian period. But then a year later, I remember I was in the press club in Delhi on a Thursday night, we used to meet foreign correspondents and this, this uh, freelance came in and he said, I've just been in Kandahar and uh, there's this new student movement who uh, seem to be trying to organize themselves into a real uh, coherent opposition against all this banditry and civil war that's going on in Afghanistan. They're called the Taliban. And I thought, well, that's interesting. So I went over there, found a BBC journalist in the Northwest Frontier who was, in fact, the only journalist, Rahimullah Yousafzai, that Taliban leader, Mullah Omar, would ever speak to. And he and I went in and started talking to these people and started making some contacts. And two years later, they took the country. And I was, me and my crew were the only foreign journalists with them in uh, Kabul, when they actually rolled into Kabul and rolled into the presidential palace. We were just behind the main advance overnight, and we arrived into the presidential palace, and th there's a sort of street uh, very nearby called Wedding Street, where they sell all these garish decorations for weddings, and th there was a tank that had gone through the gates of the palace, festooned in all this sort of plastic, you know, crap from the sort of wedding street. But actually just over our shoulder in the square was the bodies of the former communist back leader, Najibullah, and his brother, who'd been murdered in the palace and then hanged in public, then just left hanging there for, the, for, for, for a couple of days. And actually, they were there for a couple of days. And it was Rahi Mullah, my, this producer I was working with, this very gentle Afghan, Pakistani Pashtun journalist who succeeded in getting their bodies cut down. The family phoned him and said, look, you know, could you talk to your friends in the Taliban? And, you know, can we, can we stop this public display? Oh, my goodness. Now, that is what I call a biff, bang, wallop opening to our episode. I'm wondering about the fact that Afghanistan for, for decades, for centuries, has been so tantalizing to outsiders historically. Why is that? It's um, geography is fascinating. I mean, it sits right in Central Asia. Um, a British writer at the beginning of the 20th century called it the roundabout of Asia. And there's a wonderful poem by a Pashtun poet, uh, which says that Afghanistan is the heart of Asia. There's a sort of sense of it being, you know, in this crucible of all these countries, this is the place. And it is. I mean, if you look at the map, 
it's sitting between Central Asia and South Asia. It's sitting between the, the great high land mass of Central Asia and the plains of, of India and, and Pakistan and the Indus Valley. And in fact, when if you're driving from Kabul to the east, you feel, it feels like you're coming off this mountain plateau. I mean, Kabul's very high for a capital city. It would be wonderful a place to go on holiday in mm -hmm. the summer because the air is clear and the, and you're in this you know this high city. It never gets too hot. Then you, you plunge down with the Kabul River into the plains of Pakistan. So it's the sense of its geography really matters. And the people who live in those mountains, only 5% of Afghan land is irrigable agricultural land. The rest of it is mountains and desert. And the people who live in those mountains are you know, famously hard to organize from the center and against many invaders going back to the British, you know, three times during the 19th century and early 20th century, and then the Russians, and then, of course, more recently, the Americans, the country will sort of rise up and unite only against an invader, and then, of course, be very difficult to govern in the period in between. It has a sort of warrior history. The words of the national anthem basically say, Afghanistan is a wonderful place. It's full of mountains and rivers, and, and it's very beautiful. And then it lists a whole series of tribes. That's every, the whole of the rest of the anthem is, you know, Tajiks and Uzbeks and Hazaras and this and that and Pashtuns. Sounds a bit like Billy Joel song. Yeah, Making all the tribes. And, it's, uh, and that sense of that diverse tribal identity is a very strong, is, you know, one of the, if you like, the one of the strong unifying factors, but it makes it a very difficult country to, to invade. It, it, the, there is a temperament that every man is a warrior and will rise up against an invader. So if you look at the history of Afghanistan, as you say, David, you very quickly get a sense that this is an almost impossible place to try and conquer and rule. So what is the what are the circumstances that lead up to the Russian invasion in 1979? Why does it happen? I think if you look at Afghanistan's 20th century history going back, there's a very interesting period between the 1930s and 1970s. A Ashraf Ghani was the first president um, who took over from a, another leader who hadn't died in office you know, violently since 1901. So every single leader all the way through you know, was either ousted or died, or died violently. But there was this long period during the 20th century under King Zahir Shah when Afghanistan was relatively neutral. They stayed out of the Second World War. The Germans were very keen to get them on side against Britain and India. Of course, Britain was ruling all of the land up to the mountains, what's now Pakistan. Zahir Shah kept the country neutral, but he never really modernized the country very successfully. So there was this period during the 1960s and 1970s when you had a growing sense of, you know, younger people, youth revolutions happening right across the rest of the world. They could see what was going on elsewhere. They wanted part of it. But still this quite sclerotic system, you know, very agricultural country, you know, not, not developed at all. Its main exports were sort of wool and, and raisins and, you know, these kinds of, of, of products. It, was, you know, it wasn't a, in any sense a, an industrial country. And you had this growing sense of frustration and Zahir Shah was pushed out of office in 1973 by his cousin when he was in uh, Rome. So there was this internal sort of palace coup, if you like. And the man who took over from him, Daoud Khan, was much closer to Moscow than Zahir Shah had been. So you began to get this closeness to Moscow. He'd been the defense minister in the 1950s when Afghanistan sought American support. <laughs> it was, you know, one of those missing moments in history. If 
Eisenhower in the early 1950s had said to Afghanistan, yes, of course, we'll give you, you know, military aid, we'll, we'll support you. It's the history of the last 70 years worldwide would have been very different. And uh, Dawood went to America and said, well, if you don't give me weapons, I'll have to turn to Moscow because we need weapons to defend ourselves. Yeah, that, I mean, Egypt was the same way, wasn't it? Mm. We, we see that time and time again in, this, uh, in the lyrics of this song. S- similar dynamic, absolutely. So, and then you get this leader in the mid-1970s who, while being a reformer and more progressive, is quite close to Moscow. Um, you know, he wasn't a communist, but he he was, you know, he's progressive and saw Russian support as being something that would would be valuable for the country. But then you get this spiraling downwards in the late 1970s where there's always the problem where you're trying to offer some reform in a country, but you never quite offer enough for, for the sort of radical elements. You, you've now got the PDPA, the Afghan Communist Party, had emerged and began to agitate against Dowd. And in 1978, there's a violent coup against Dowd. He and his whole family were murdered in the palace. And you have effectively a sort of communist takeover by Afghan communists, backed by Moscow, but they were never stable. So between 1978 and 1979, Christmas 1979, when the Russian invasion happens, you get this two years of instability, three leaders, huge disruption in the countryside. They make the national flag uh, just a red flag. Uh, you know, So they, d- they destroy, in a sense, the integrity of, of Afghanistan. They really annoy the tribal systems in the countryside because with major land reforms, they take away land from big landowners. And it's a very traditional country with lots of sort of patronage networks, families, clans, tribes really matter. Those are the important sort of glue that holds uh, society together. They disrupted that very significantly. Tens of thousands of people were murdered. It's during those two years before the Russian invasion in 1979 when you get the beginnings of the collapse of Afghanistan. 90% of the country's university professors fled the country. This is interesting because it sounds from what you're describing that it's the leadership, those in power, who are all playing within the rules of the communist party system. But people with uh, feet and huts on the ground, they're not really buying into the whole communist dream. One of the pleasures doing research into that period now, the Cold War period, is the whole of the National Security Archive is available online. So you can you can read transcripts by the CIA between the Afghan communist leader and the leadership in, in Moscow. The Russian communist leader is saying, we've given all this money and, you know, we've supported you. And why isn't there a communist, you know, revolution? Why isn't there? And the Taraki, the leader of Afghanistan, is, is ex- patiently explaining there isn't an industrial proletariat. They're just peasants. This is the height of the Cold War, late 1970s. They believe it's going to go on forever. And the leadership in Moscow become more and more frustrated. And then you get in 1979, you get the beginnings of quite big uprisings. There's a big uprising in Herat in the West, city close to Iran, you know, certainly fermented by Iranians. And this is, this is of course, before the Iranian revolution. So the, the leadership in Iran are very conservative, but they, they certainly don't want the sort of, you know, the communists in, in Afghanistan. So they're supporting the people who are rising up. There's a, there's a split in the Afghan army. It's even before the the Russians invade. And then by the autumn of 1979, you've got two battalions of Russian forces already in Afghanistan. And they took out all of the firing pins of Afghan tanks, telling them it was part of a winterization project. They were, you know, they were redoing all of the armor in the Afghan army. So they basically made it impossible for the Afghan army to defend, even if they'd wanted to defend for this Christmas invasion. Because it sounds like the Russians were so terrible at reading the room 
they were doomed to failure. No, but you've got to remember that at the time, Russia was moving into a number of countries in Africa with similar kinds of, of wars. I mean, the Cold War was only cold in that we didn't fight. We, the big Western countries, didn't fight against Russia directly. But there were lots of conflicts right across the world, you know, right across Africa, horrible wars, which were very much fermented by lots of Russian lots of Russian money, lots of communist thinking. And I think they thought Afghanistan was the same. It was a peasant economy. There was also this sense, one of the reasons why the British had always wanted to control Afghanistan in the 19th century was to keep Russia out of India. The geographical location of Afghanistan really matters here. And during the so-called years of the so-called great game, that was always the British fear that the Russians would you know, sweep in moving across Afghanistan and into India. And so there was a sense in the 20th century, the late 20th century, of that same move that Russia was now finally doing what it had not done in the 19th century. Because it had moved, if you look at the map, the end of the 19th century, the beginning of the 20th century, Russia, the greater Russia moves a huge distance down across the steppes, across what later became Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, all those, you know, Stans, Samarkand, Bukhara, all the way down to the river at the north of Afghanistan, which is where they stopped in 1920 and didn't go into Afghanistan, but 50 years later they did. When the invasion happens, particularly bearing in mind how prolonged the conflict will be and how problematic it will be for Russia, it actually happens relatively quickly. It's a, it, it's a breeze, but it's also one of those cliches that Afghanistan is very easy to take and very hard to hold. And we saw that in 2001 with the Americans. Very similar a sense of hubris. You know, we can take out the Taliban and, you know, roll in and we talk about that separately. But in 1979, there was that sense that, again, uh, they were supporting a communist I mean, it was really an internal communist argument. It was one communist leader, Amin, who'd only taken over during 1979, who was ousted by another. He was actually killed in the palace by a, a pillow being put on his, on his head. Um, <laughs> um, so very sort of easily, in a sense. And Barbara Kamal took over, who was now backed by Moscow. Very un unwilling leader. He was a drunkard didn't really want the job. He'd been ambassador. He'd fallen. I mean, th these were arguments within the Afghan Communist Party. So the Russians were trying one leader after another, if you like. And in the first year, he built lots of mosques and sort of tried to persuade Afghanistan that he was you know, on side with this conservative Islamic society that was there. But the, the mullahs who were put in were, uh, were seen as sort of communist stooges and immediately shot by people in the countryside. So there was, a, there was a sense in which they were trying to get over the problems of the past, but with this very, very small number of troops. And if you, again, if you look at the CIA records, Americans were really perplexed in late 1979 as to what Russia was doing. It challenged the American intelligence community's perceptions as to Russian predictability. If you've got a big nuclear armed enemy, you kind of want to be able to understand what signals they're going to be sending. To and anticipate. So, and suddenly they do something apparently irrational. This reminds me, Katie, a little bit of our, of our episode on Stalin. Yeah. And then our episode on Khrushchev and the sense that JFK was, was bamboozled because he thought he could charm Khrushchev and then found out that actually he was this illogical man who didn't make decisions on the same basis that John F. Kennedy did. That confusion in American minds when Russians don't behave as they expect them to. There can be an advantage in it. Yes. There, can, there was a sense, I mean, President Trump was not a great foreign policy leader, but that's, that 
actually that sense of disruptive chaos chaos you know what's he going to do next yeah was had some values along the way and it, you know there were some things that that happened certainly america's relations with pakistan that i you know you could argue that trump wasn't going to take in the hypocrisy any longer he was going to really call them out in a way that america hadn't done before subject of another podcast but <laughs> it's kind of, but so there's so there is a sense in which sometimes it can work but on this occasion they were worried they were perplexed they didn't quite understand what was going on you know to your question tom about it wasn't a, you know it wasn't a very big force it didn't look like they could take the country it was known as the limited contingent it wasn't geared up for counterinsurgency it wasn't geared up for settling at all nobody expected the sort of ragtag pajama clad mujahideen to come to anything these were these you know insurgent fighters who at the time they only had sort of old british british era lee enfield rifles there's an amazing um arms manufacturing capability in the mountains between afghanistan and pakistan around the durand line ramp shower and um and all of that those, those mountains you go into these mountain villages and People are making weapons in foundries, literally at the back of a grocer's shop. And those were the kinds of weapons that the Afghans, uh, Afghan uh, forces were, had against, you know, helicopter gunships, against, against, you know, the Russian army with tanks and, you know, armoured units. Not very many of them, but still quite a few. So no one expected the, the uprisings against them to have any effect. And of course, by the spring of 1980, that had begun to change. You had this very coordinated organization, we talk about that perhaps separately, in Pakistan of insurgent fighters fighting for jihad, um, not fighting for money. All the advantages were on their side. They could cross into Afghanistan along mule tracks without anyone sort of uh, stopping them, whereas the Russians, these were impassable to the Russians, so they couldn't chase them into the mountains. So they, they had a safe haven on the other side of a porous border, um, a limitless supply of, of well-motivated young men against a country with, all, you know, this drunken leader with a cor already corrupt leadership, a sense the communists weren't managing the country very well, and Moscow unwilling to really commit the right number of troops or to train the troops that they needed in order to be able or equip them in order to be able to fight in that environment. So during 1980, you saw the beginnings of an insurgency that 10 years later succeeded in pushing the Russians out. What was the reaction across the world when the Russians invaded in 1979? It was Christmas. I, I remember it. I just started working, I know I'm a little older than you, I just started working as a journalist. I literally just, 1979 was really the first, you know, I was doing some amateur sort of freelance work at the time. And I was in my parents' house, and I remember I remember hearing this this news on the big radiogram yeah. know, in the corner. Um, I mean, just before we get on with the international reaction, it's very interesting. Inside the Russian establishment, only three men took the decision. Brezhnev's, the Russian leader's foreign policy advisor, heard about the invasion on BBC World Service. Wow. The So the decision was, and I've seen the papers, the decision was agreed by this small group inside the um, Politburo around about December the 12th. And the defence minister, when he was told about it, said, we don't have enough troops, we don't have a plan, this is a bad idea. And he was told do your job. It's a little bit like Ukraine, you know, in the last year, you know, get on with it. You know, this, these are your orders. Are you questioning the orders of the Soviet leadership? You know, head off to the Lubyanka and get shot or invade Afghanistan. You know, was the, I mean, that's how the Soviet Union operated. 
the whole Politburo only signed the order on December the 26th, two days after troops had crossed the border. Mm. You know, the sense in which this was not a rational decision by a you know functioning country was quite was quite interesting. The Americans were right to be perplexed. You know, the Soviet system wasn't working in the way that they'd they'd expected it to be before. You got to remember that 1980 was a election year in the United States. Jimmy Carter was the president. He'd already been humiliated in Iran. This rescue attempt had gone wrong. The Iranians, you know, of the but, hostages but with the hostages so, in so, the American embassy. So that region looked very scary. With you know, there's, all these hostages were being held. There was a rescue attempt that failed. Helicopters crashed in the desert. Americans, American lives lost. It was it was seemingly everything he was he tried to do was failing. And President Reagan, you know, won that election with a very strong sort of anti-communist you know background, and was persuaded to boycott the Moscow Olympics, as we've heard, you know, quite quickly. And the key relationship there was Margaret Thatcher. So she went to Moscow and said to Reagan, better spine in now. You know, this is this is where he didn't really notice. It didn't feel like a big deal. And at the time, and in fact, in the early 1980s, the United States thought that the place where they would bleed the Soviet Union dry would, was in Central America. It took a long time before that really changed. And I think the, I mean, Britain was it was sort of instrumental in a sense in, as I say, in, in putting that narrative into the American mind. The, the and, idea that this was an opportunity, hey guys, here's an opportunity for, for Russia just to run out their own batteries. This is where we can bleed the Russians. Yeah. Um, very strong anti-communist sense in the, in the British Conservative Party. A man called Robert Cranbourne later became Lord Salisbury, who was a Tory MP and was very influential in helping to get lots of journalists into Afghanistan, actually, and you know, funding some freelancers. Um, at one point, he set up this mad idea that they were going to send satellite dishes into Afghanistan with, uh, with um, hang gliders <laughs> and so that, so that journalists could get their pictures back because they were quite heavy and you couldn't sort of carry them, you know, but meals. So there was a lot of um, imaginative thinking going on. And he founded an organization called Afghan Aid, which is still going now and is really now a really good, effective aid organization. At the time, there were quite a lot of quite sort of upper class, you know, Sloan Square characters who en ended up in Peshawar running this organization because they were saw this as being sort of something they could do against communism. And Cranbourne was, was very influential with Margaret Thatcher. She went to, to Reagan. And then you had this second move, which was from Charlie Wilson. And if you if you want to see an entertaining movie, watch Charlie Wilson's War. It's based on a great book by George Cryle. Tom Hanks is this sort of six foot three, you know, Texan who, I mean, literally takes kind of supermodels with him to the Hindu Kush, you know. So when he's meeting with these grizzled Mujahideen, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a kind of girl on the bed with a... Well, there's, there was one description of one who had a kind of jumpsuit with high, high boots when she was meeting Gulbuddin Hekmatia, who literally, when he'd been a fundamentalist leader in Afghanistan in the late 1970s, was getting students to throw acid in the face of girls, girls whose faces weren't covered. You know, this, these were, you know, hardline Pashtun sort of conservative fundamentalists. And there's this whiskey-drinking, fun-loving Texan but they didn't care about his morals because he was the man who was going to bring some weapons in. And he went to Peshawar and 
saw you know these huge refugee camps full of you know people and and you know saw the wounded mujahideen the first time he went he gave a pint of blood uh, and in fact every time he went there again he'd do the same you know in in this uh, refugee hospital at the time he was a key fundraiser in congress mm. and he went back and he said how much are we spending on supporting these mujahideen and was told that the figure i think was 10 million dollars at the time and he said double it and he just did that with with almost no committee meeting and that from that 10 20 million dollars you ended up with i think the total was 3 billion from the us altogether during the, during the years that followed that flowed into the pockets of these of these mujahideen leaders so we're talking about uh, these incredible characters who sometimes are stumble bums who just kind of find themselves whoopsies we're doing a war to other people who have stronger ideological commitments but what about the the poor suckers trapped in the war, the the actual citizens of Afghanistan, the people in the mountains, how were they coping? Of course, now we have generations who've known nothing but war their entire lives. But how was this affecting the Afghans themselves? Around a million and a half died. And maybe th- three million you know, were refugees, about two million in Pakistan, about a million in Iran large movements of people across the and inside the country itself and yeah i mean it was it was very tough the other thing that happened to them was there's been some really interesting research on this a, a hardening of their islamic faith so the french writer olivier Roy has written several books on this you know the sense that once they lost the the things that held society together the tribal links that you know the the bonds of society Islam became a much more binding sense in people's lives. So previously in Afghanistan, you had this quite sort of Sufi, mystical, you know, poetic sort of view of Islam. It wasn't, you know, what it, what it later, this hard line that later became. And of course, you know, when the Taliban, Diabandis came in, you had much more of it. And it got hardened up partly through a reaction to you know what had happened to them but also because of a deliberate pakistani decision so pakistan wanted to control understandably because there was a huge amount of aid flowing in you've got these hundreds of millions flowing in for the united states matched by the way dollar for dollar by saudi arabia so every million dollars that america put in saudi arabia puts in a million dollars saudi arabia as we know at the time and now you know wants a much more radical sort of Islamic take worldwide and were using Afghanistan as an opportunity to radicalize the country deliberately, assisted by Pakistan, who you could only get rations if you were a refugee in one of the Pakistani refugee camps, if you were allied with one of the Mujahideen groups. So they organized seven Mujahideen groups on the Sunni side and a couple on the Shia side. These seven Mujahideen groups became enormous powerhouses of cash. And so did the Pakistani ISI, the Pakistani Secret Service that was funneling all this money, also became you know, hugely wealthy with the corruption that came out. And when I'm, when I'm talking about wealthy, Gulbuddin Hekmatyar, who I mentioned before, in the late 1980s was the fourth largest investor on the Italian stock exchange. <laughs> this is, during, during the time, he's a hardline Pashtun leader leading a Mujahideen fight against, uh, you know, a communist-run, communist-run country. So, and these were the people that Charlie Wilson was funding. 
I mean, the other side of this, of course, is American forgetfulness. I mean, ultimately, you've got Osama bin Laden in the mountains by the late 1980s working as a as a funder he's you know one of the people supporting all this funding because he's a saudi and he he's got deep pockets yeah his family did i'm not sure how much he personally had but he had very good links he came from this um, family of industrial builders as it were they they owned huge sort of earth building equipment which is why he he had the capacity to build this huge cave complex in eastern afghanistan where he ultimately holed up Mm. 10 years later. But the Russians in Afghanistan, staying with the Russians in Afghanistan during that period, you've got a hardening of Islam and you've got a sense from the Americans that they they didn't really care that this was a problem. So the sense of, you know, the, of carelessness that we, you can look back now and say, look, here was America funding Osama bin Laden in the 1980s and radicalizing generations of Afghans, which is something that has come back to bite us, you know, in spades. 30 years later, there wasn't a coherent sense. And actually, if you really cared about women's rights in Afghanistan, supporting the Russians would have been a good thing. I mean, there were plenty of Russian helicopter pilots, engineers, doctors who were women who were sort of looked up to by Afghan women. And, and in 1989, when the Russians left and Afghanistan was left to fight for itself, it wasn't hard to train a women's battalion in Kabul to fight against the Mujahideen because they knew what the Mujahideen would do once they came. Because the Mujahideen were imposing, this is pre-Taliban, were imposing very strong restrictions on women in the refugee camps in Pakistan where they had this control. Oh, gave them an incentive. Yeah. I've got another childhood memory, Katie, at this point, which illustrates how the Mujahideen were being portrayed as the good guys at this point. So I think it's the first Timothy Dalton Bond movie, Living Daylights, where the climactic scene is Bond working with, I think, an old university chum who is a Mujahideen leader chasing Russian tanks out of Afghanistan. Yeah. Well, that's exactly that's exactly how they were seen. That's exactly that period. That's who they were. They were heroes, you know. And of course, you then get, you know, the Russians spent a lot of time and a lot of effort in trying to control Afghanistan. Like the Americans later, like the British before, they failed. There's a quick change of Russian leaders in the mid-1980s. You have Brezhnev dying, you have um, Andropov and then Chenyenko. In three years, you have four Russian leaders. And then Gorbachev takes over. Next generation wants to finish the Russian war. Uses, interestingly, that by now there's quite a strong Russian mother's opposition to the war of people because there's 15,000 young Russians have died. Far fewer, by the way, than in Ukraine. You know, are we going to see those same protests? So one of the things that leads the Soviet Union to, and leads Gorbachev to say, look, we've got to stop this war is are these increasing protests in, in Russia against against the war itself. And uh, by 1989, you've got an agreement and the Russians leave Afghanistan. Now, the problem then comes that Charlie Wilson didn't stop funding the Mujahideen really? because a Russian-backed government is still in power. And in fact, the film gets that wrong. <laughs> the film ends with this, you know, it all sort of stops and it didn't. They put in a, carried on putting in a huge amount of money because although the Berlin Wall had come down in 1989, although... You know, and I've talked to American policymakers who were around at the time, and they they say, well, it wasn't over. We hadn't, you know, we hadn't completely killed the beast. Yes, Charlie Wilson had been right. This was the place to bleed the Russians dry. It did, you know, it was a successful operation from that point of view, but it wasn't over because the because Russia was still intact, was still funding 
its surrogates, Najibullah, who was still in, in power. The Mujahideen were incredibly divided from then. It's only when actually the Afghan army split and a character called Dostum, who's one of the big commanders in the north, came over onto the Mujahideen side that that was it. It was all over for, for Najibullah and he ended up being arrested and being taken into the UN compound where he was taken out five years later and I you know, saw his body as I was describing before, he and his brother. So he and his brother were taken into captivity in the United Nations. You then had, I mean, the consequences of this invasion. And you would have seen the consequences by the time you first visited Afghanistan in 93. That was this miserable civil war between these Mujahideen. You know, the Najibullah government had gone, the Afghan Communist Party was no longer in power. The Mujahideen came to Kabul and actually all of the destruction, I mean, you see these terrible pictures of sort of rubble across Kabul. All that destruction was not during the Russian war. It was during this civil war between these Mujahideen fighters in mm. the early 1990s who was, had been seen as great heroes, as you say, and were still, and no one was watching. I say it was the forgotten war. Because mm. by this point, we've got conflict in the Balkans as well. So the, in terms of the, the eyes of the world's media, they're trained in a different war at this point. The camera moves on. You know, I mean, you, you report sport, Tom. In Australia at the time, there were these two, there were two brothers called Ward, W-A-U-G-H, mm. who were in the Australian cricket team, who were really good. There was a third a brother, and his nickname was Afghanistan, because he was the forgotten war. And, <laughs> yeah. and, and there was, there's that sense that, you know, it was that, so that's what it was. That was, it was known as, a, that was what it was in the early 1990s. It was still happening. People knew it was horrible. But the eye had been taken off the ball, moved to the Balkans, you know, Rwanda, 1994, mm. 95, you know, th so there were other things going on. And there must have just been a, a horrible rendering of of the fabric of the culture there by that time. I understand that it was a culture of, of drugs. Not as bad as later, but yes, no, you're right. Okay. And 90% of the heroin on, sold on Britain, Britain streets is, comes from Afghanistan. Most of it comes from Kandahar and Helmand in the south. Mm. The, the real drug increase was, was much later under, under the Americans. Actually. Okay. <laughs> Why? When the Taliban were in power. So the Taliban took power as initially um, a sort of conservative Islamic reaction to chaos and initially were popular, oddly, and did succeed in stopping poppy growing by their last year in power. America invades in 2001 after 9-11. By 2007-8, the Taliban are no longer idealistically opposing poppy growing because they can see that poppy growing is, you know, is funding them against, um, against the Americans. It's one of their biggest supplies. So they become, they become a much more criminal uh, organization than actually they had been when they were in power. Yeah, when they in power, they were, they were quite idealistic in the 90s. David, I want to talk about how you ingratiated, is probably the wrong word, but how you got in with the Taliban. Why did they trust you? I mean, traveling with Rahim Mullah was like traveling with Elvis. I mean, he was a rock star. <laughs> he was absolutely a rock star in because, because of the BBC's Pashtu service. So he was the best known journalist in the country. I remember one one night at a checkpoint, we were having trouble. We 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 come into town too late. It was you know we we shouldn't have been there. We were after a curfew. You know, the, these young soldiers were giving us a hard time. Young um, Taliban fighters, you know, and they were beginning to search equipment. You know, and I was kind of I was, I was tired, wanted to go home, and um, and Rahimullah said in his rather gentlemanly way, "Do you think I should tell them who I am, David?" <laughs> and I said, "How many you tell them?" You tell them? Yeah, <laughs> come on. That's the first order of business. So, um, look, number one rule of any foreign journalist, they hate us calling them fixers, but mm. 
There isn't a better word. You know, wherever you are, local journalists who know the situation on the ground, know the languages. I mean, I speak terrible, childish Pashto. Having someone who really knows them, you know, can read situations. You know, we were in, I mean, I described when, when I was with them when they took Kabul. And we went into the palace and we looked at the destruction they'd already, they'd been there for four or five hours by then. And they'd already, sh you know, they had this thing about not showing pictures of women or, or pictures of anyone, actually. So there were, there were these old, you know, not, not great paintings of sort of Afghan horsemen right, and playing buskashi, this wild game they play on horseback, you know, wild, mad game, which is where they fight with each other over the carcass of a calf. <laughs> and this is a really heavy, so you, and you pull it up and, you, and with, put your leg over it on the horse and uh, try and ride to the other end of the pitch with everyone else trying to knock you off at the same time. Wow. And it's the most macho sport in the world. It's, it's just like, it's like astonishing. Mixed, mixed martial arts it's on, like, it's, on giant it, it's, beasts. It's, po it's polo and wrestling put together. It's, you know, so, and, <laughs> That's you something know, for you to cover, Tom. Say that on my list, Katie. <laughs> and so... There was these paintings of Buskashi, and, and they they shot out all the faces of the men on the horse on horseback already overnight, and there were some there were some statues of dogs, and they cut their heads off. I was going to ask, the like, do the, the the horses have to be obliterated? No, I as think well. so. I think the horse. Well, I, you know, they hadn't been there long. Okay. Um, the horse had <laughs> survived so far. Yeah, humans you know. first. Um, but just give you an example. And Ray Muller picked up that the atmosphere changed. We'd been there filming about half an hour. He said to my cameraman Fred, "He said we've got to go now. Just just stop. We've got to leave now." Because, you know, these were men with weapons who'd just, you know, taken the country and killed the former leader. Yeah. And we were, you know, after all, television, um, which they didn't like. My experience traveling with them was that when they were fighting, they were fine. You know, the, the young men in the front line, very cool about us being around. You know, they quite wanted to do it. You know, you know, show my better side, you know, quite vain, actually. Yeah. Um, but as soon as the, as the clerics arrived from Kandahar... And then it changed. Then you couldn't film anything, and then it became you know much more difficult. They didn't so, have a sense of hey, this is pretty good branding for how rough and tough we are. Well, the clerics didn't. Well, they no. weren't thinking like that. They weren't. You know? thinking and like they, that. well, then later they then later they did. And I mean, I, I had this extraordinary experience in two thousand seven. So this is a, you know this moving on from the Russian period and from this civil war period. But I um, I spent four or five days with their then military commander in Helmand province when the when the British were fighting against you know these very Taliban. And the way the invitation came, I mean they knew that I'd travel with them in the nineties. I had then an, a different producer fixer who I was working with, who my intermediary with them. My safety on that trip was the Pashtun Wali, their honor code which says that, you know, I will defend a guest with my life, that, you know, um, but I'll, I'll be hostile to the enemy. But, but I, if somebody is invited into my home, then he is, he, is, he is as my family. And during this time with them, and by the way, I mean, they did it because they wanted to improve their public relations. Mm -hmm. They said, we, we felt that we were, when we were in power in the late 1990s, we weren't properly understood. So they, <laughs> they found, I was, I was seeking an interview. It was, you right. know, I mean, the market, was, the, the market was right. I was looking for something. Turned out they wanted to provide it. Right. I was the only, I was completely on my own with this one Afghan filming a Newsnight film. And, and on that occasion, you know, they traveled high speed across the desert with all these young warriors. And they did want, to, they wanted to look fabulous. You know, they wanted yeah. to be on television. And then after a couple of days, there were this group of fighters who hadn't been in on the invitation, who didn't think that it was cool that there was this British guy hanging around the mosque, and they came to kill me. Oh. And, um, and I heard there was this quite 
strong argument between their military commander and these and these and they were they were kind of sweating from the battlefield a couple of their guys had been shot by the british you know they were sort of they were a different sort of figure than these kind of staff officers as it were i'd been with the last few days and there was this quite tough argument in which the pashtun wali was invoked and i always said to the bbc they said this is crazy why how can how can you go on your own into to go and talk to that i said i, I my, my my security is the honor code of the Pashtuns. Mm. And uh, fortunately, it worked. So I'm here to talk to you. Oh, goodness. <laughs> it's an extraordinary story, David. It's, it's, it's made me think that there are so many victims of, of this war and the, and the civil war that follows and the invasion that follows after. The stories that have stayed with me from, from the research are those of the children who, because there was a lot of landmines, there was a lot of ordnance left on the battlefields and on the streets, and the infant mortality rate and unfortunately the disability rate amongst young Afghans is, is horrifying. It's pretty awful. I mean, there's a great organization, Halo, who are still operating, who are, who are doing demining. They've been demining. I mean, they literally create agricultural land where it didn't exist before. You know, farmland is too unsafe. They, you know, it's the only land production organization in the world. And they're still operating under the Taliban. It's tough, but they're still there. But yeah, it was... It was awful. And the Russians were merciless. I mean, they did some terrible things. They, they had uh, booby-trapped, you know, thermos flasks mm. and, you know, food tins and, you know, sleeping. So they would, if they left a location, you know, kids wandered in, they just picked them up. It is a, a country with a lot of disabled people and, and a lot of, you know, a lot of families who've suffered a lot of, a lot of war, a lot from war. And look, uh, still are. I mean... This winter, the second winter, the Taliban have been in power and they're terrible at government. I was reading a piece in the Washington Post yesterday, actually a long piece about just how miserable it is in Kabul at the moment. Nobody's got any work. I was talking to an <clears throat> Afghan friend of mine the other day whose mother is still there. I mean, he was a government minister and he's now in London, but his mother is still in Kabul and she... There were two things that she could do. She could go to the gym. There was a women's only gym she could go to. And there was a women-run bakery. And she could go to the women-run bakery. Both of those have now been closed by the Taliban because women are not allowed to do any work. So the consequences of the international failure to really finish the Russian war properly, which led to the civil, the Mujahideen, you know, fighting against each other and Charlie Wilson still supporting them and led to the rise of the Taliban. And then, and then the consequences after 2001, and I, I mean, I've just written a book about this, the long war, um, really describing the challenges over the last 20 years and how we got the aid wrong and how again, just as the Russians had in 1979, America didn't put enough troops in at the beginning mm. to be able to stabilize this country. It maybe only needed 25 or 50,000 troops. America's troops were welcome in 2001, yeah. but quite quickly disorder returned. And actually, it was the old Mujahideen, Fahim, who became the first defense minister, who were the people who, the people who brought this disorder 10 years previously to Kabul, did the same in many ways again and took many of the reins of, of power. So it was very difficult for the democratic governments, President Karzai, President Ghani later, who I, I worked in his office for a year actually after I left the BBC. 
Uh, if only he'd listened to me, he'd still be in power. No, he, <laughs> he, no but it was but it was very interesting government to be in. And, and, and so you were watching. living there and advising on how yeah. you know the right moves to make and how to communicate how his to manage objectives. a press conference, whatever. Absolutely, I see. yeah. Mm-hmm. How to deal with the press, and I was advising his team who were doing that. So right. I mean, I was, but I had lots of direct contact with him. I, mean, I was in policy, I was in policy meetings and watching the challenges of dealing with this corruption which had been brought into the country. And in a sense, I mean, his predecessor, President Karzai, always said, corruption's not our problem, it's yours. It's your money, America, that you're bringing in. And there's something in that. What does the future look like for Afghanistan, David? It's pretty, short term, it's miserable. I mean, short term, it's just dreadful. The the Taliban have been there now 18 months, no capacity to govern, beginning to become tougher and tougher on women, actually quite tough on men too, you know, the young men. I think... One of their surprises was the society that was in Kabul when they came. So, I mean, the way I put it was America lost the war, but it didn't lose the people. And Afghan people in the last 20 years since 2001 have taken the opportunity to educate themselves, to, you know, girls go to school. Um, They have very different aspirations. And this is all since the American invasion. Since 2001. Since 2001. And actually more successfully than the the Russians. The Russians were quite successful in many ways. They built a lot of infrastructure. But the, the social changes that have come to Afghanistan are radical. And I think the Taliban were quite surprised. And actually, there was, there was quite an interesting moment in 2017 when there was a three-day ceasefire for Eid, the um, religious holiday at the end of Ramadan for Muslims. And President Ghani wanted it, and the Taliban wanted it. And all these young Talibs came into town, and they literally checked in their rifles at police stations on the edge of towns and came into town for, you know, for the Eid holiday and then you know, went and picked them up and went back to the mountains again. And it was a very interesting. I mean, the relationships on the streets are extraordinary footage. There's a wonderful picture of the Home Affairs Minister who got out of his car one day and just shook hands with some Talibs who were in the street. And these young, young Taliban with sort of flowers in their ear and eating ice creams and going to get a haircut and, you know. And actually, they were really surprised because what they found was a functioning Islamic country. Lots of people celebrating Eid, going to the mosque, had been had been fasting during Ramadan, and all of their propaganda was telling them that this is a godless country where people wear blue jeans and drink whiskey and, you know, because the Americans are here. Right. And lots of these young Taliban didn't go back to the mountains to fight because they felt that they were only fighting... By 2017, the Americans weren't really fighting against them. It was just Afghan on Afghan. They didn't want to kill fellow Afghans, especially fellow Afghan Muslims. The leadership of the Taliban, when they came into Kabul in 2021, hadn't appreciated the change that had come about in this, this. So they came in in many ways to quite an alien country. It was difficult for them to immediately impose the social restrictions that they'd wanted to. But they have imposed those social restrictions and in the medium term, I'm afraid the only solution is more war. Um, there's going to have to be a fight to get rid of the Taliban because they're not going to leave without a fight. And it's not a, it's not a functioning country. There's 40,000 potentially. I was reading an intelligence report this week, 40,000 al-Qaeda fighters in Afghanistan. Tell us the difference between the Taliban and al-Qaeda. Their history is very different. The Taliban is a nationalist, conservative, Pashtun organization that existed only for Afghanistan, whereas Al-Qaeda, their entire 
raison d'etre, Osama bin Laden's idea was in order to, you know, radicalize the world, was in order to sort of bring, you know, a different kind of Islam worldwide. Um, first, fighting against the, the, I mean, he talked about these two enemies, the near enemy, which is the Emirates of the Middle East, and the far enemy, which is the United States, the godless capitalists of the United States and Europe, you know, the Enlightenment world, if you like. I mean, you could argue, and there is a, there's a very good book, An Enemy We Created, you, the, the title tells you the whole story, that actually, you know, Al-Qaeda was elided with the Taliban wrongly by the CIA in late 90s and after 2001, and there was always a difference between them. Now, that's different now. So I think the modern Taliban and the younger fighters, quite resistant to the old men who did the Doha negotiations that led to American withdrawal. Thank you very much. They've got rid of the Americans, but they have a much more global jihadi outlook. They're much closer to the Al-Qaeda. They're, much, they're willing for Al-Qaeda to work in their midst in a way that in the 90s, they, they, I mean, they... I say they weren't very keen on them doing it, although Osama bin Laden, as we know, successfully carried out an attack from a cave in Afghanistan. So, and the Taliban were absolutely hosting him at the time. But I would say unwillingly at the time, now they're much more aligned in terms of their global view as well as their view of what should happen in Afghanistan. It's like a super group, um, <laughs> bad boy bands. <laughs> they're back together. Back mm. together again. David, I'm wondering if you can talk about the long-term implications of the Soviet-Afghan war on Russia's actions currently in Ukraine. There's a line between the Russian invasion of Afghanistan and, and, and Ukraine, which goes like this, that, you know, it, that if America operated better at the end of the Afghan war and had finished the war properly, you wouldn't have had the emergence of the Taliban, you wouldn't have had 9-11, you wouldn't have had America back in Afghanistan in 2001, and you wouldn't have had the American withdrawal in 2021, which was disastrously done. President Biden didn't have to withdraw when he did. He certainly didn't have to withdraw in the way that he did. And there's a lot of American generals who commanded there who are really angry with him for the way that he did it. And a lot of Afghans who are in equally angry because he just threw it away. They could have stayed for longer. Mm. And the way that it happened certainly emboldened Putin. I think Putin felt that you know Biden was weak, that he was just going to pull away from um, any sort of international entanglements that were difficult. And so as, so, as I say, so that's a direct line through from the Russian invasion in 1979 through to, you know, through a series of missteps, if you like, by the American-led coalition, but it is mostly the United States in Afghanistan that leads to Putin being emboldened in February 24th last year to invade Ukraine because he didn't believe that the international community would have the resilience and the will that they did in order to arm the opposition against him. Is there a possibility, and we're, we are moving into a different um, theatre of war here, uh, David, but is there a possibility that in the same way as Afghanistan was described as as the Soviet Union's Vietnam, that the invasion of the Ukraine will be as prolonged and ultimately disastrous for Russia? Oh, God, I hope not. I mean, it's a neighbouring country. I mean, it's, it's you know, it's, it, it doesn't feel like the same. And it is, I mean, look, it's, it, it's a symmetrical war between two big, originally Soviet-trained armies, now, of course, increasingly, you know, Western-trained. There's thousands of Ukrainians going through training in the United Kingdom at the moment. So I think it, it feels like a different sort of different sort of war. I mean, I think the other way that I, you'd look at Ukraine against uh, Afghanistan, Afghanistan was defined by Western policymakers in the 1980s as being the place where they could, they could defeat Russia globally. There wasn't the same sense of values, whereas I think, you know, and you, you've got this 
very impressive leader in Zelensky who's framed the narrative as being Ukraine is on the front line of democracy. There's quite a difference in terms of the framing of of what's going on. But, you know, whether it'll have the, the same impact on, on Russia ultimately, I mean, with more than 100,000 Russian casualties already, I mean, something like eight times more than in Afghanistan in a year, and Afghanistan was a 10-year war, you can control the media for only so long. But all those mothers and wives in the end, you know, are going to turn around on the, the old Soviet leadership on Putin and say, look, what's all this about? David, both Katie and I were looking forward to this episode. Yes. We're looking forward to your expertise and it's not disappointed. So thank you very much for joining us. On thank you very much. I mean, I've enjoyed it a lot. I'll tell you what, Tom, David Loyne, what a cool customer he is. I mean, he could stand up to our interrogation and that of the Taliban. I'd like to think, Katie, ours was significantly easier than that of the Taliban. But um, do you know what it made me think, actually, as we listened to him? Um, we are more than 100 episodes deep into our oh. escapade. Aren't we lucky? Some of the stories we hear and the people we meet and the things we learn. So lucky. And you know what stuck in my head when he was talking about that aphorism about Afghanistan, easy to take, hard to hold? That's what the boys say about me. <laughs> My past is littered with paramours who couldn't stay the course. <laughs> if you would like another podcast to listen to before Katie and I return, try The Secret History of the Estonia. This is an investigation into the mystery of why a passenger ferry sank back in 1994, killing 852 people. This was Europe's worst peacetime shipping disaster since the Titanic, and many people remain convinced that the truth behind the sinking has been covered up. Journalist Stephen Davis hears unbelievable eyewitness accounts from survivors and speaks with investigators who've been working on the case for years. It is truly fascinating stuff. It ends up delving into espionage, into spies and the Cold War. It's definitely worth checking out. Just search for The Secret History of the Estonia in your usual podcast places. If you'd like to get in touch with a story or a guest idea, you can contact us on email at fire at crowdnetwork.co.uk or on social media. We're at Spread That Fire on Instagram and the Twitter. And make sure you check out our merch collection at spreadthatfire.com. Next week, Katie, we should be talking about Wheel of Fortune. I would like a Wheel of Fortune clickety-clack noise from you, please. What is the Wheel of Fortune? Isn't, is it, isn't it like that big wheel that goes around, you spin it and you go... Okay, here I go. That sounded more like a ground-dwelling mammal, but see you next time. Crowd Network. A place where you belong. A news story gets shared by a friend on social media, or you catch a tweet that really makes your blood boil. But how do you separate fact from fiction? That's the premise behind Disinformation, a 10-part series from Evergreen Podcasts and Emergent Risk International coming this fall. Tune in to Disinformation wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, don't believe everything you read.
This is Peter. And this is Tom. We want to tell you guys a little bit about our podcast. Tom and I met in college, became best friends, and then teachers almost 20 years ago. Sometimes school just does not allow us to elaborate on the topics that we find interesting, like the real shark attacks that inspired the movie Jaws, or the real historical context to Indiana Jones artifacts. Where does cereal come from? Or are zombies real? Does Ben Franklin really deserve to be on a $100 bill? On our podcast, just like in our class, there are no stupid questions. Just two friends having a lighthearted conversation about history, pop culture, and the context of current events. Listen to History Teachers Talking Podcast from Evergreen Network, anywhere you get your podcasts. Hello, this is Gary Chahot welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present. If you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that. We also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th century pirates, revolutionary booksellers in 20th century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today.